You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 16th of January 2023 on Monocle 24. Davos returns, but how will it move us forward? Russia and Belarus begin joint air force drills. Could this be a precursor for a renewed ground offensive? And Netanyahu's new right-wing government looks to overhaul the Supreme Court's powers. Is Israel's independent judiciary under threat? I'm Vincent McAvinney. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Vincent McAvinney. My guests, James Rogers and Alison Kaplan-Summer, will discuss some of the day's big stories, including the UK's announcement of a dozen tanks for Ukraine, as the German Defence Minister is forced to resign. And Prime Minister Rishi Sunak's on the hunt for a so-called free speech czar, as he simultaneously curtails Brits' right to protest and take industrial action. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. Well, this is the Monocle Daily and I'm Vincent McAvinney and I'm joined by James Rogers, journalist and author of Assignment Moscow, reporting on Russia from Lenin to Putin, and Alison Kaplan-Summer, journalist of Haaretz in Tel Aviv. Welcome, both of you. Alison, very special actually having you here with us in the studio today. What brings you to London? Um, I happen to be on holiday and I report often to uh, Monocle and so I thought I would come on your show. Oh, great. Well, we're very uh, pleased to have you. Uh, And uh, James, good to have you you too. Um, Well, without much further ado, we are going to head first to Davos, where after a three-year hiatus, the World Economic Forum's annual winter get-together in the Swiss Mountain Resort is back. To get a sense of the mood on the ground as the high-minded debates and glitzy parties kick off, we're joined by Monocle 24's Tom Webb. Tom, thanks for joining us. Uh, Can you give us a sense of how the first day has been? Hi, um, I'm not on holiday, but I am in Greek house uh, on the main promenade. I'm tucked into a lovely warm room surrounded by Greek treats, grapes, oranges. It's just like a Renaissance painting, uh, actually. Uh, Space is hard to come by here because it is busy, busy, busy. Um, I'm actually covering all the various houses here. These are civic buildings, restaurants. They've all been taken over by many different countries and businesses to promote their culture, uh, their values, their economy. Um, And as I say, it's been a truly packed start. I mean, we're at day one and I can already sense it's it's going to be a record year here for sure. It's uh, it's like a a festival atmosphere. Uh, There are are black cars streaming up the mountains with with big names, electric cars spinning out of control on the ice. It's just, uh, (laughs) it's a bit chaotic. Um, But that's what happens when you descend on a tiny little mountain village in midwinter, 1500 metres above sea level. Well, it sounds like it's bouncing back from the pandemic. But as always, there's a lot of scepticism about how this forum can really help move forward the issues of the day. What's the mood like on the ground from uh, those who've uh, rocked up? Well, the, the, the mood from the official event organisers is optimism, optimism, optimism. I mean, the, the event theme here is all about cooperating in a fragmented world. And, you know, that's a catch all for the crisis that's screaming at us from the foot of the mountains here. You've got the war in Ukraine, energy crisis, cost of living crisis. And then, of course, this mention of a global recession we're just about to slip into. And of course, I mean, 
the implications of the pandemic it just will not go away and not least the not least the sort of um spit test that's still plaguing the elite up here um organizers that they are though hell-bent not to get too bogged down in all this crisis i mean i i was at india house earlier today and the managing director there told me how india is this big beacon of light in the global economy whilst sort of totally failing to mention the truly enormous uh, unemployment crisis that's escalating there. Um, but th there are forums and roundtables on these kind of accessible big human issues, but there is a lot of fingers in ears and they're just screaming, please let these horrible problems go away. Mm. And it's been touted very much, as you say, as a return to business. Uh, but some of the key leaders that usually make an appearance aren't there. There's no President Biden, President Xi or Prime Minister Sunak. So who is actually coming? And aside from the kind of main debates, what's going on on the sidelines there that are signals of maybe what's to come in the year ahead? I mean, on, on paper, this is a gigantic return to business. We're seeing today a record uh, number of finance ministers in attendance. We've never seen so many. And there are governors of all the central banks. But as you say, no Biden, no Sunak, no Xi Jinping. I mean, in fact, the only G7 leader here is Germany's Olaf Scholz. And that's largely a sort of handover from Angela Merkel, who just loved coming to Davos. But, you know, it's, it's no surprise. I wouldn't come here as a world leader. I mean, it, and that's just because to be seen hobnobbing with a global financial elite right now is just a ugly, ugly thing. There's so much pressure to find a way forward this year. And it's not something I would want to do. Mm. Tom, thank you very much. That was Monocle's Tom Webb on the ground in Davos. Now, listening to that were our panellists, James Rogers and Alison Kaplan-Sommer. Um, let's get your thoughts first. Have either of you actually been to Davos and what did you make of it? I've not personally been to Davos, but a lot of my friends and actually relatives, my brother is there now. He's a high-tech uh, CEO, and um, and I spoke to him on the telephone, and he said that there's a really high level of excitement among the business executives who are there, that they haven't really gone face-to-face -face since January of, uh, of 2020. And so they are, a lot of them, you know, battling against this looming recession, and especially in the high-tech world, these cutbacks, there have been, you know, waves of layoffs. So they are scrambling mm. by their fingernails and... And all of these countries are, you know, front and center trying to assert themselves. Um, it's and not a, it's not a time for kumbaya, you know, yeah. hand holding, but it is a time for some uh, very aggressive marketing and trying to stave off this uh, this downturn that everyone's expecting. And all that's happened in those three years, particularly for businesses, you've got the complete change in supply chains. You've got countries pulling manufacturing, particularly of chips out of China. There's a lot to discuss there. Um, James, have you been at all? I haven't, no, but I know we've got lots of people in my professional network who've both actually worked for the World Economic Forum and, and reported on it. So, yes, of course, it is a very big thing that it's back after three years. And I see that the theme of this year's meeting is cooperation in a fragmented world. Quite a well-chosen phrase, obviously, because, mm. I mean, even if the roots of this go back a long way to the 1970s, I think, but I think the, the real boom years over the last two decades, yeah. we have lived in when very the rock different stars political and economic yeah. times than the ones which we face now. Yeah. You know, we're, we're talking about the end of division in Europe and now divisions, of course, 
course, very well established again in Europe. We're talking about the globalization of the economy. You know, some people say that's in retreat, never mind in recession. So it is, I think, probably quite a challenge. And, and you know, as your correspondent was pointing out, you know, it's not a great look when, you know, everyone's worrying about how to pay the electricity bill to be seen, frankly, you know, eating lots of great and nice Greek delicacies and whatever yeah. else. I mean, Alison, do you think that's a reason why maybe world leaders seem to be staying away this year? Because in many countries, you've got high inflation, you've got a cost of living crisis. Are we seeing sort of leaders do a bit of a kind of scaled back performance on the international stage at the moment? No, absolutely. There's a really uh, push to take care of things at home. So it, it is not a good look to be hobnobbing with the with the cocktails, etc. And many of these leaders have big problems at home and have to uh, have to take care of business there. Mm. Yeah, and, and it's I mean, for Rishi Sunak in particular, I think, yes, in this country. Yes, it is. I mean, I think it wouldn't be, you know, he's facing all kinds of problems. You know, we've just seen in the last hour or so that, the you know, teachers are going to probably go on strike in England and Wales, and there's been a, a large wave of industrial unrest here. I mean, just one other point as well, you know, this was also a big playground for Russian so-called oligarchs. I don't think we can really use that phrase anymore, but in recent years it has been a lot of Russian capital, um, you know, doing business around the world. That clearly is over too. Um, mm. So it is, we're, we're living in very different times from the boom years i think mm. and final uh, question on this post pandemic there's lots of debates about whether big gatherings like this where people are flying in often on private jets you know are they tenable do you think there's still a value in this kind of global networking event i think that the pandemic has emphasized how important it is to go face to face and how much it's been lacking in the past three years so i think that it shows that it's much more important than ever and not only davos but all kinds of conferences that have come back and people have appreciated the value of that uh, human-to-human contact and not everything can be done virtually. Mm. So I think it's, uh, you know, it's bounced back stronger than ever. I think yeah. Alison's absolutely right, although I do think that during the pandemic there's been, you know, greater focus on the idea of sustainability and private jets are probably one of the least environmentally friendly modes of transport the world has ever known. So uh, questions about that too for the future, probably too. Yeah, particularly when most of the Alps is struggling, it seems, to get any snow. There is some we see at Davos, but uh, yeah, climate change obviously another topic there. Um, but moving on, one topic that will definitely be on the discussion agenda at Davos uh, is, of course, the war in Ukraine. Over the weekend, fresh Russian airstrikes across the country again damaged energy infrastructure, but also destroyed an apartment block in Dnipro, killing at least 40. Military personnel, emergency services and volunteers are continuing to sift through the rubble. Over 70 residents have been rescued, but there are still several missing, with hope fading of finding them alive. Meanwhile, despite promises from several nations, including the US and Germany, the UK has become the first Western nation to confirm it's shipping 12 of its most advanced tanks, Challenger 2s, to Ukraine. And they might be needed sooner rather than later, as this morning Russia and Belarus announced joint air force exercises, triggering fears Russia might use its ally to launch a fresh ground offensive. So a lot going on in the war. James, first, as a Russia expert, what did you make of these joint air exercises with Belarus? Well, they were, Belarus is saying that it's got no intention of joining the war, but of course, you know, it has assisted indirectly so far. I think, you know, the situation in Belarus is quite complicated. Let's not forget that the President Alexander Lukashenko faced something that President Putin hasn't faced in recent years, which is large-scale domestic opposition over uh, an election uh, that was widely seen outside the country as fraudulent. So there is perhaps, you know, there's a lot of people, a degree of wishful thinking, I would say, saying that in Russia, the force mobilization is going 
going to lead to some sign of political discontent. There's no sign of that so far. I think it may be a slightly different story in Belarus. So I think, you know, Belarus's claims that they don't intend to enter the war can possibly be taken at face value to some extent. But of course, you know, if I were the Ukraine defence minister, I'd be keeping a very close eye on what was happening mm. uh, in the border region, of course. And whilst Lukashenko might not send his own troops, he could allow his nation to be used as a staging post for Russian troops because, frankly, he doesn't have a way to object to that. No, he doesn't. I mean, I think, you know... Put very simply, one of the price of his staying in power and getting sufficient support was when Russia was, you know, agreeing that they were going to get on. And for a while, of course, you know, Lukashenko and Putin have had this sort of occasional falling out, fallings out. But now I think he is probably his administration is entirely reliant on the goodwill of the Kremlin. The man writing the checks, so keep him there. Yeah, yeah. Um, Alison, Israel, of course, no stranger to the exchange of uh, rocket fire. Sadly, what did you make of the pictures of this residential building, which seems to have been uh, potentially targeted? targeted by Russia over the weekend. No, it's terrible. The entire world is, uh, I think, holding its breath with the uh, the one-year anniversary of the uh, of the invasion of uh, of Ukraine by Russia and expecting something very major, as you um, mentioned, uh, possibly launched from several fronts. And so uh, Israel is is watching that, and it is very delicately now with its new government trying to uh, rejigger its relationship to the Russia-Ukraine conflict. Mm. And Alison, um, we've heard from the UK as mentioned over the weekend that tanks are on the way but where does uh, Israel's new government stand when it comes to supporting and taking a side in this conflict? Israel has until now staunchly refused to supply any weaponry to Ukraine um, the previous government led by Yair Lapid and Naftali Bennett lent moral support uh, humanitarian support to Ukraine but its eyes are always on Israel's northern border which is Controlled, Basically, the airspace is heavily influenced by Russia and therefore the assessment in Israel's national security echelons, highest echelons, is that uh, Israel cannot afford to anger Russia or provoke Russia. This new government led by Benjamin Netanyahu is perceived to be much more friendly to Vladimir Putin than this uh, this previous government. But uh, you always, it always has to balance itself with its uh, a close uh, allyship with the United States. A lot of this is going to depend on how much pressure President Biden Biden decides to put on Israel to be more staunchly in the in the Western camp. So it's really a tug of war between this strategic um, uh, alliance with uh, uh, Russia in terms of protecting its northern border and the need to protect its relationship with the U.S. The one thing that is different since the last time Benjamin Netanyahu is in power is this now this close um, reliance on Iranian support by the Russians, and that may tip the balance. Netanyahu may be much less friendly to Russia than he was in the past because of this new. Uh, cooperation between Iran and Russia. Hmm. And of course, you know, Joe Biden possibly on the long march now to uh, an election next year, he needs to preserve his relationship with Israel. But do you think, given this kind of scope of the world, is he going to be saying to uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, you know, look at all the people lined up in support of Ukraine. It is far more nations than are aligned with Russia. You need to pick a side. Do we think that that could shift at all in the next year or so? It could possibly. And also you have to think from Netanyahu's uh, point of view in that there's going to be with this new government, there's uh, we'll talk about it later in the show, but these issues over democracy, over human rights, over uh, LGBT.
LGBTQ issues um, in the give and take between the U.S. and Israel that one can expect in the coming months. One thing, one chip that uh, Israel may decide to play is the Ukraine uh, sympathy chip and therefore may lean more towards Ukraine than we would expect Netanyahu to do. It really depends what's going to go on in the greater scale of the uh, U.S.-Israel relationship. Mm. Um, And uh, James, uh, in the thank you tweet that Zelensky sent out over the weekend, he he thanked Britain and said he hoped it would be a signal to others. We've heard promises but not deliveries yet. Why do you think that is when it comes to tanks and other armaments? And this story about the... um, German Defence Minister Christine Lembrecht. I mean, she had previously, the German government promised tanks. They haven't been delivered yet. They haven't ramped up their military as they said they would last year to the surprise of many. Uh, what do you think is going wrong in the international community with this kind of difference between messaging and delivering? I mean, I think, you know, the, the description that Alison's just given of the situation which Israel finds itself really is a, is a clue to answering that question. This is not a straightforward matter. And to those people who say, oh, this is a, a conflict confined to one region of Europe, are absolutely dead wrong. It has effects on all these relationships right around the world, as, as Alison's just been explaining. So I think, uh, and one big question further down the line, you know, I note today that the Kremlin spokesman, Dmitry Peskov, has said that these Challenger tanks will will burn just like the rest as he, as he puts it so we can see and we haven't really seen this so far except in diplomatic terms but what are the longer term consequences going to be is there going to come a moment when Russia decides that it is going to treat you know it's going to try to strike at these armaments mm. convoys as they cross NATO well they've countries. said any armaments coming in are valid well, targets exactly so that at one time they might decide to uh, you know to, to, to act upon that threat so I think there's a lot to consider here um, as far as Germany goes you know right since the start of the of the conflict they have had you know a difficult role to play right from the beginning in fact leaders referred to their history there which of course involves uh, you know the killing millions of people during the second world war this is still something which which weighs very heavily upon them uh, both in, in Russia and in Ukraine but um, I mean in terms of the defense minister she seems to have made quite a few missteps not least mm. uh, giving that um, New Year's Eve broadcast with fire about Ukraine with fireworks going off behind her which was clearly in, in poor taste of a gap. Through, <laughs> there so, yeah, the very least, yeah. And Alison, just a quick point on this. I mean, uh, last year in the announcement that Germany was going to sort of ramp up and become a military power in the heart of Europe once again, it's, it claimed at the time. What was the reaction to that in, in Israel, given the history? Um, well, Israel and Germany have uh, have had a very, since obviously um, uh, the years where uh, things you know, we're obviously tense between the Jewish state and the and the country of Germany. The allyship has been very, very strong. And I would say Israel has had more support from Germany than almost any other European uh, country. So it's not something I think that uh, that bothers Israel uh, unnecessarily. Mm-hmm. Well, turning uh, now more fully to Israel, more than 80,000 protesters have rallied in Tel Aviv against plans by the new right-wing coalition government to overhaul the judiciary. Proposed reforms would, among other things, make it easier for Parliament to overturn Supreme Court rulings. Um, Alison, can you explain exactly what these reforms are and why they're trying to make them now? Well, the Netanyahu government is trying to make them now. Remember that this is a very extreme right-wing, highly orthodox uh, religious government um, for these forces, both on the political right in terms of wanting uh, increased control in the West Bank um, to increase control over Palestinians, increase uh, freedom of action by IDF soldiers um, against the Palestinians who are opposing them without criminal consequences uh, in terms of uh, religious laws that would necessarily 
uh, be viewed as discriminatory by a, by a civil court. A lot of these parties have you know desires that are being blocked by Supreme Court rulings. Even when the parliament passes laws that uh, you know you have a right wing majority, the the Supreme Court we don't have a constitution in Israel, but we have a set of basic laws that are interpreted as a constitution. And the Supreme Court steps in and says, "No, you can't do this." And now that the right has this majority and uh, Israeli law allows basically all of this to be changed by legislation. They want to pass legislation allowing the parliament to uh, block, to cancel any Supreme Court ruling with a simple majority of 61 of the 120 legislators, which in a country that does not have very, that has very little balance of powers is eliminating almost the only balance of power you have and is going to hand almost absolute power to whoever is uh, in mm. the ruling government, which is very, very worrisome to those who view democracy not only as the rule of the majority, but as the responsibility of a balance of powers that protects human rights. And how significant were these protests? Uh, they were significant. A uh, hundred thousand people in the rain, you know, standing in Tel Aviv. And there were also uh, auxiliary um, uh, protests in Jerusalem and Haifa. It was a lot of people standing up against the uh, the government. It was the opening shot in a protest movement. And so we're going to have to see how far it can uh, it can sustain itself and how much uh, influence it's going to have on Benjamin Netanyahu, who is completely reliant on these very right-wing religious parties mm. to hold together his government, even if he is personally concerned by this wave of protests. The, the issue is how much maneuverability does he have uh, to, mm. to uh, fight it? And James, just from a kind of wider international perspective, uh, what do you think allies will be thinking about the health of democracy in Israel? Well, I think it's a very worrying trend. I mean, I was reading a report in the Financial Times about this just the other day, and one of the protesters there was comparing what was happening in Israel to what he said had happened in Hungary. In other words, what he saw as a severe decline of democracy there. And I think it is, it is very worrying. I mean, not least because, of course, uh, in Mr. Netanyahu, the, Israel has a prime minister who is currently facing criminal charges. Now, I understand. On Trial. The government is saying that this isn't going to affect it, but you know maybe not this time, but maybe for the future. You know where does you know and one thing that Israel has always made a you know a big point about in the region in which it finds itself is that it is a democracy surrounded by non-democracies, and this you know I think really to the outside observer really undermines uh, that case. I think, yeah. and it is, but it's part of a broader trend. You know, we saw you know let's rem- let's not forget um, President Trump, who was no himself no great respect of the rule of law, particularly mm. when it came to the January 6th protests. So yeah. I think it's part of a worrying trend of established democracies around the world deciding, having leaders that maybe decide, actually, you know what, that's not for us anymore. It doesn't apply to me. Yeah, and sort of just kicking on that point, final uh, question on this, Alison. Netanyahu has, of course, been around for decades now. Is this sort of the slow creep of authoritarianism from him Sort of what we're seeing, you know, is it kind of inspired by other leaders around the world who just don't stay on the international stage, won't exit stage left? Is that what he's sort of co-opting? It is. And again, you know, his motivation is to extricate himself from this criminal trial. Uh, he's on trial for bribery and for uh, for breach of trust. One of the proposals, not in this wave of reforms, but possibly in the future, is to actually cancel some of the charges that he's, uh, he's actually facing. But it's greater than Netanyahu himself. It's more than just this one person. Again, there are members of his coalition who are even more determined to pass these reforms than him. And it is definitely part of what uh, we've been talking about in a, just a global way 
wave of right-wing populism that is, uh, that is sweeping the world and Israel is not immune to. Hmm. And finally, with our panel today, we're heading down the road from our studios in Marlebone to Westminster, where in 10 Downing Street, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak is blowing hard to reignite the remaining glowing embers of his predecessor Boris Johnson's fiery culture war. Today's distraction, the need for so-called free speech czars, ostensibly to fight imaginary cancel culture, particularly on university campuses. But simultaneously, his government is trying to stymie free speech today by announcing new police powers to curb protest, having already announced last week proposals to restrict industrial action. James, you're a university lecturer. Are you thankful that Rishi Sunak is coming to your rescue with this new position? Uh, I'm uh, supremely indifferent, Vincent, if I can put it that way. It's not really a a major troubling phenomenon which I recognise. I can only really speak, you know, from my experience of my department, my school and my university, but it is not something that troubles us. You know, I I think it would be very unlikely that said that, you know, the university where I teach would invite um, an overtly racist speaker to come um, because, you know, there's always a line, of course, of the classic dilemma about free speech and hate speech and so on. But it's not something that really I'm not when I when I saw this in the in the newspapers, I I didn't think, thank goodness for that. Now we can Mm. get back to having free speech because it's not (laughs) a situation I recognize, certainly not where I teach. And Rishi Sunak, to coin a term from the Gen Zers that you teach, his vibe uh, isn't really a sort of red-blooded culture wars that dominated Anglo-American right-wing politics for the last few years, particularly as he has a keen eye on sort of his post-premiership, which might be quite soon, jetting around the world with this sort of global elites to places like Davos. Do you think he really cares about this sort of stuff, or is he just sort of sort of playing a bit with what Boris Johnson did to distract from grave problems in his government? I mean, I think that's a difficult question to answer, but there's no doubt that you're right. There are massive policy challenges facing him. I mean, is this a vote winner? I doubt it, probably. And I think anyone who's going to be impressed by this is almost certainly going to vote Conservative anyway, or, you know, possibly, you know, a a, a more right-wing fringe party. But I don't think this is not something that, you know, in a time when there's huge concerns over... I mean, if there's a report in the Times newspaper about this story today, their front page was, was about how few people trust the health service in this country. Now, they're so worried about the state it's got into. That clearly is a much more pressing concern. So I don't know if the Prime Minister thinks this is an easy way to win votes, but it's certainly not going to reverse the fortunes of his party. This alone is certainly not going to reverse the fortunes of his party, which is massively behind in the opinion polls mm. at the moment. And Alison, from an international perspective, I mean, is the world worried about the state of free speech in the UK? Oh, deeply. It's one of the burning issues of the (laughs) day. It's just the irony, right? A free speech czar. You must have free speech. I mean, there's there's definitely a contradiction that, an irony in that. I mean, I'm much more familiar, obviously, with uh, American politics. I'm originally from America. I have lived in Israel for many years. But it really echoes this, uh, you know, whole uh, um, right-wing culture war, rally the base, and uh, uh, they may feel like maybe it'll get more, you know, conservative voters out to the polls than uh, than would uh, normally show up. But it, it really feels very gimmicky to me. Yeah, more often than not, it's consequence culture. Well, um, finally on today's show, sanctions have become the go-to foreign policy tool for the United States. But are the ways in which modern states use them harming their uh, use? Backfire, a new book by Agathe Demarais, the global forecasting director of the Econ- Economist Intelligence Unit, 
Summit explores the surprising ways sanctions affect multinational companies, governments, and ultimately millions of people around the world. From Russia's invasion of Ukraine to Iran's COVID response and China's cryptocurrency ambitions, Demaray reveals how sanctions are transforming geopolitics and the global economy, as well as diminishing US influence. Monocle's contributing editor Andrew Muller caught up with Agathe Demaray a little earlier. She began by telling us about her direct experience in the world of sanctions. It was a very direct experience. What happened essentially is that I was a French diplomat living in Moscow and working in Moscow in 2014. So before February 2014, I was covering economic and financial affairs for Russia and Central Asian countries. And from one day to another, literally, Russia annexed Crimea and started to back separatist rebels in the Donbass region of eastern Ukraine. And I joined a French task force working on Russia's sanctions. And that was my intro to sanctions. And already at the time, I could sense that sanctions had ripple effects, which is the topic of the book, for instance, on European companies. And then I moved to Beirut and I covered the Middle East again for a French treasury. And I was covering a number of countries, including Iran. I was actually on the ground in 2015 when the nuclear deal was signed. I was also covering Syria. So very sanctions heavy places. Mm. And that was all my intro to sanctions and, and how I got to learn about sanctions. The book, as the title suggests, is somewhat skeptical about them, but you're not altogether against them. So, first of all, when have they worked? You, you seem to suggest that they did for a time in Libya, for example. Yes, absolutely. The book isn't against sanctions. I absolutely want to make that clear. A parallel that I make is that sanctions are a bit like antibiotics. So nobody is suggesting that antibiotics don't work or shouldn't be used. But what is clear is that the overuse of antibiotics leads to resistance Mm. and leads to side effects, undesirable side effects. And it's a bit of the same thing with sanctions. And the purpose of the book is to explore these to make sure that sanctions remain a useful and important tool because it's the only tool that Western democracies have to fill in the gap between empty diplomatic declarations on the one hand and deadly military interventions on the other hand. And as you say, in the book, I explore a few success stories for sanctions. And one of these is Libya. And I think that what is really interesting with the Libya case is that the US tried in the first place to go it alone with Mm. sanctions against Libya in the 1980s. We're not talking about the 2010s. And it didn't work. What worked is when other countries via the United Nations joined the US sanctions effort against Libya, and that worked. And what this shows us is that multilateral sanctions tend to work best. Well, if we look at the present day, that spectrum you describe just then, and you describe it in the book as well, between doing nothing on the one hand and sending in the Marines at the other extreme, is quite a wide one in which sanctions operate. Have governments lapsed into using them as a way of looking like they're doing something when they don't actually want to do anything? Yes, absolutely. Well, essentially, as I mentioned in the book, sanctions have this advantage of filling in this gap, but they also come with other advantages, notably for the US, which is by far the most sanctioning country in the world. The US has around 70 sanctions programs and it targets about 10,000 individuals and companies around the world. And well, essentially, sanctions come with other advantages. The first one is that they're very cheap to implement. Mm. You only need a few people at the US Treasury or at OFAC, which is the US agency 
agency in charge of US sanctions, you only need a few people to implement sanctions because their effective implementation relies on banks around the world. It is financial sanctions. They're called financial sanctions because it is up to banks to make sure that all of the transactions that they process comply with these sanctions. So it's really an externalization of US foreign policy. So they're very cheap. They're very quick also. One night mm. may suffice. I mean, in my experience, it can be a very long night, but it's it's enough for sanctions to be implemented. And finally, the third advantage is also that a lot of studies have tend to show that sanctions boost the approval ratings of the policymakers that tend to support them. So it's a very good way to show that the government is doing something about an unfolding crisis. But is right there the fact that they are so quick, uh, relatively cheap and easy part of the problem? Because as you correctly point out, they can be imposed more or less instantly, but they may not actually have any meaningful effects for months, years, if indeed ever. Yes, absolutely. That's the problem. That's the disconnect. And I think that the Russian case at the moment is a very good example of this. There is a clear disconnect between the fact that the popular opinion wants some effects immediately. So for instance, there had been a lot of talk of a collapse of the Russian economy because of sanctions. Mm. That's purely impossible. That's not going to happen. Sanctions against Russia are going to take a long time to work. We have the Iranian example, for instance. The US went for very stringent sanctions against Iran in 2006, and it took nine more years for the nuclear deal to be signed. So sanctions will work against these economies very slowly, and that's obviously a problem to public opinion that something is being done. There is this disconnect. But your book's thesis is that sanctions can be not merely ineffective, but actually counterproductive. I mean, is there an obvious example that demonstrates what you mean by that? Well, in the book, I explore four ways that sanctions can be counterproductive. They can have humanitarian side effects. I discuss the impact of sanctions in Iran during the COVID crisis. I actually argue that lifting sanctions wouldn't have been enough to cancel their effects at the time, essentially because sanctions have deep structural effects on the economies that they target. I also explain how sanctions can fuel diplomatic disputes between the US and its allies. And in my view, such disputes are very dangerous because mm. they only benefit sanctioned countries such as Russia. And I discussed the Nord Stream 2 pipeline case. Of course, in hindsight, it wasn't a good idea to build a gas pipeline between Russia and Germany. But what was clear within the European Union is that there was a consensus that the US was taking things one step too far by imposing extraterritorial sanctions against a European Russian project. I also discussed how sanctions can have an impact on multinationals. I am um, What happened essentially to European companies after the US withdrew from the nuclear deal in 2018. The US was not in the deal. Europe was in the deal. But because of the threat of US sanctions, European companies had to leave Iran. And finally, I also discussed the fact that sanctions can have an impact on commodities markets and ripple effects across the world, across the supply chain, for instance, for aluminium, as far as Guyana, Australia and Ireland. That is the Russell case from 2018, which I discussed in the book when the US imposed sanctions on a big aluminium producer. Is there also an argument that they can end up actually working for the regimes they're targeted against because they have the effect of isolating and impoverishing the population, giving a nationalist leader a rallying point? Whenever I talk about sanctions with anybody, I'm always reminded of a friend of mine in Serbia when it was under sanctions during Milosevic's rule who just said, you know, what good is going to come of locking us in a cage with a maniac? 
Well, yes, that's a very good example, actually, of the fact that sanctions can have counterproductive effects sometimes. Well, they can be used by authoritarian regimes as a scapegoat mm. to explain economic mismanagement. That is, for instance, what is happening in Venezuela at the moment. The root cause of the economic crisis in Venezuela is economic mismanagement from the Maduro regime. But the regime can use sanctions as an excellent scapegoat. It's the same in Cuba, for instance. Since 1960, Cuba has been under a U.S. embargo. And the answer to every economic problem is it's because of the embargo in Cuba. So it can be a scapegoat. And the second thing is, as you pointed out, sanctions actually work because they impose economic pain on the population of a targeted country so that it will impose pressure on its government to change course. That's exactly what happened in Iran in the run-up to the signing of the nuclear deal. What happened was that sanctions, especially from 2012, put Iran under tremendous economic pressure. There was a deep economic crisis in Iran. So the Iranian population elected a reformist by Iranian standards, Hassan Rouhani. And Rouhani had pledged to get sanctions lifted in return for concessions regarding Iran's nuclear program. That's exactly what happened. And so that's a success story for sanctions. But the part where there is pain on the population, one could argue that's essentially the main mechanism for sanctions to work. Well, just finally then, and I'm sure that there are any number of very long answers to this question, but is there a way they can be made more effective? Do they need to be cleverer? Do they need to be targeted at individuals or even individual institutions? Can they actually be made to work? Well, there are three ways to answer your question. The first thing that I would say is that against individuals, these sanctions are a theater. They don't have a real impact. It's only about the wealth and the travel plans of a few select people, such as Russian oligarchs. So these sanctions are a theater. That's exactly the wording that I use in the book. The second thing, and it's the conclusion of the book, I would believe that multilateral sanctions, and this goes back to the points that we made at the start of our discussion, multilateral sanctions are probably the sanctions of tomorrow. They're much harder to draft, but they are also much harder to circumvent, and that makes them more effective and also less unpredictable for targeted countries. Because one of the problems of sanctions these days, especially US sanctions, is that some targeted countries have the feeling that these come and go, and so they may not have the incentive to change their behavior to comply with the demands of the US, for instance, to get sanctions lifted. And finally, as I mentioned in the book, the sanctions of the future are probably export controls. This is exactly what we are seeing with recent US restrictions on the export of semiconductors to China. Mm -hmm. And this will set the scene for a global war around technology for decades to come. That was Andrew Muller in conversation with Agathe Demaray. Well, that's all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. A big thanks to my panellists today, James Rogers and Alison Kaplan-Summer. Today's show was produced by Paige Reynolds and researched by Andre Nikolai Pamentoan. Our sound engineer was David Stevens. I'm Vincent McAvinney here in London. The Monocle Daily is back at the same time tomorrow. Goodbye and thank you for listening. Listening.